You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to a special crossover edition of both the Boston Celtics-focused podcast Celtics Pride on Celtics Blog and the Philadelphia 76ers-focused Gastroenteritis Blues on the Liberty Ballers Blog Network. We are teaming up today to uh, join our two podcasts together as the Sixers and Celtics are facing off in the 3-6 matchup next week, and uh, we want to break down the series. The format today is going to be question and answer. We're going to ask each other questions about the other team, since you guys are the expert on your team and we are on ours. We want to learn about what's about to happen in this matchup. But first, a little bit of context. Yeah, let me just give some historical context here, Josh here. You know, just to the listeners, we got two new podcasts sharing the love here. We've only done about 30 of these total. So you're listening to some of SB Nation's up-and-coming content right now. You know, so you can say... Yeah. Yeah. So you can say, you know, I heard them way back when or, you know, when they were just getting started, started out. Um, and as far as the Celtics Sixers here, um, the Celtics have actually won every playoff series between these two teams since 1982. Um, so we got the 2018 semis, 2012 semis, uh, 2002, the first round, 85 was the ECF. Um, 82 was when the Sixers won the last time, last playoff series. Ouch. Really interesting stuff. And that's not, you know, that was the Boston Strangler with, when, when Tony, Andrew Tony scored 25 in the fourth of uh, game six and then had 33 in game seven in the beat LA game. And, um, but before that, the, I mean, this rivalry goes way back. The Celtics and Sixers have the most meetings of any two teams in the NBA playoffs. 20 series, the Celtics winning 13 of them. And it goes all the way back to the Syracuse Nationals, 1954, 55, and 56, three straight years before the Celtics got Bill Russell, Casey Jones, and Tommy Heinsohn. The, the Nationals were dominating the Celtics. Um, then they'd win their next three playoff series in 57, 59, and 61 before the Nationals were sold and moved to Philadelphia to become the 76ers. So this rivalry just has a lot of history to it. It's not just the last couple of years. You know, we can go through that history with drafts and trades and, and players like that. But um, super interesting historical context here, guys. Wow. Uh, does that count moral victories or no? Do you know? No, those are actual victories. Sort of less important. Would, would you like to list the moral vic victories from the Sixers sure. side? The Sixers beat the Celtics in October last year. I remember that. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, I have one, guys. I uh, remember when uh, 
Kevin Garnett was yelling in Lavoie Allen's ear, and Lavoie Allen was like really cool about it. And then the Sixers lost the series. I count that as a moral victory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't remember that. He, I don't. I don't either. Out, he yelled in everyone's ear. <laughs> yeah, that was an uncut gem. So was he slapping the floor before or after he did it, or was this a one of the cases where he just yelled in the ear? It was just a yell, but it made for a very nice picture. <laughs> I can tell we're going to have to hold each other back throughout this podcast. <laughs> Coming to the present day, I think the biggest question uh, in the news, at least, is uh, Ben Simmons' injury. And I'll, I'll add Joel Embiid's small injuries, the ankle and the wrist, which sound like not a big deal. But Simmons is going to be out for this whole series, potentially the, the entire playoff run. Um, how does that affect the Sixer team? So this is Steve here. It, it looks like they pretty much have ruled him out uh, for, the, for the entire run. So they basically have to prepare without him. I think that uh, offensively, it's obviously a big loss because of how many assists he gets himself and and how he sets up guys, especially from three, even though he doesn't shoot them himself. But defensively, I think it's just as big. Dan, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So I, I do think it's a big loss. I think a lot of people, when they look at the Sixers, they see a lot of um, like perimeter defense. The Sixers are solid. They have Ben and Matisse are kind of the two guys they think of. But I, I really don't think Matisse is ready to guard a guy like Jason Tatum, whereas, whereas Ben is. Um, and Matisse, he's still kind of the guy who's going to um, over-pursue a little bit. He's going to gamble just because he's a rookie. He's not quite ready. So the Ben injury defensively is really going to place a lot of pressure on Josh Richardson. I see Matisse more as the guy who's going to guard Jalen Brown, uh, which is obviously still not an easy cover. But um, with everything Tatum can do, I think – you can't lean on a rookie for that. You're going to end up – Josh Richardson is going to be on him, and we just got to hope he can get the job done. But it's – Ben, you can't do it as good as Ben. I mean, Ben's clearly one of the best guys in the league guarding on the outside. And Josh is good, probably not great. So that it ends up being somewhere where maybe the Sixers can have an advantage to a disadvantage pretty much. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets a little bit muddy because then you think of who's guarding Kemba Walker – uh, and actually, can, do you guys know, can you speak to Walker's health right now? What what sort of health level is he at? I have been very concerned about Kemba's knee, but it seems like he's feeling really good right now. He's like cutting and stopping really well. He hasn't had any, there's been no indications of any swelling or any problems in the last week or two, and he's been slowly uh, ramping up the, his minutes. So it seems like from all accounts, he's feeling really good right now. It doesn't sound like there's any concerns. It's hard to tell if if that's all like preseason type fluff, though. You know, I'm feeling great. That was the best mm-hmm. I ever felt. All those kinds of quotes. So we, no one really knows. Yeah, it, it's tough because the Sixers, especially, I think that when they went into the season and the plan for most of the season was to have Josh Richardson hound like point of attack guys, like ball handlers coming up the court, and then leave Simmons on bigger wings. And he had a great year defensively and it could end up honestly that uh on a guy like Tatum guy like Tobias Harris with his size might be just as effective as Matisse because at least Tobias won't get himself into foul trouble and over pursue and things like that so they they definitely have a lot cut out for them in terms of handling Tatum do you guys feel like Tobias Harris is is ready for that kind of an assignment in this big series um I mean I wouldn't I mean obviously Tobias isn't up to like defense the defensive snuff of a Ben Simmons. But also I think that Tobias has the maturity 
and the the leadership skills necessary. I know those are all like intangibles, but I don't think that he would shy away from an assignment like that. It's definitely not like up. He's not up to the level of Ben, like I said, defensively, but I think he's like up for the challenge and maybe that's half the battle and he'll, he'll take it, you know, with, without, like you said, like Matisse, like bad fouls and things. Cause he's been in the league a while. He kind of knows what to do. Yeah. Brett Brown talks about that a lot about, he he sort of has some reticence in terms of trusting young guys in the playoffs and sometimes, you know, to his own detriment. But uh, I think that in a matchup like that, he might lean more on somebody like Tobias who has been around for forever than to just throw Matisse at him out of the gate. And we can kind of say the same thing for Mike Scott, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, Scott had really fallen out of favor until recently. I mean, now with Ben gone uh, and Ben was going to take up some nominal four minutes. So uh, it seems like, and Scott shot the ball well the last two games. So he might've worked his way back into the rotation, but uh, I would, I would pretty much try to stay away. I, I would honestly rather try somebody like Horford in small stretches on him than Scott. Cause I worry a little bit about Scott on defense. Hey, Horford, Horford on, on Tatum. Oh, just um, like very, very few possessions. I think that they might have to go to that if they really can't. Uh, if somebody like Matisse is in foul trouble and uh, Tobias is, is sort of caught up someplace else. What's the Sixers starting lineup? The same four that we're going to start alongside Ben are definitely going to be there. So we had Shake, Josh, Tobias, and Joel. And I would personally lean towards... Maybe a Matisse, and then you can bring Alec Burks off the bench for some scoring since you have enough scoring in the starting lineup. But what I think it's going to end up being is they're going to put Al out there. Um, and they're, they're still going to go big, just like they did when they had Ben. So I, what I think it's going to end up being is they're going to try the Al and Joel without Ben minutes because uh, generally, if you look at like the plus-minus throughout the season, they were kind of okay as long as they didn't have all three. And um, just as a fan looking at it, I mean, I would love for Al to kind of get some revenge on Boston because it's looking like a terrible signing right now. <laughs> and I really need I really need Al to play well, honestly, for my own well-being. So we have we have more questions about Al Horford later. <laughs> um, but so so if you're I assume if you're if that's your starting lineup, then Shake Milton's probably guarding Kemba. And then so- you have Al Horford guarding Tatum. I think, I, well, what I would imagine that they would do is put Horford on Hayward because this Hor- Hayward starts for you guys uh, yeah. in a regular way, right? Yeah. So that would be my guess is that uh, Horford would start on uh, on Hayward and they would, yeah, they would pretty much have to put Shake on either either Brown or, uh, or – uh, Kemba Walker, but I think that that's going to be tough because Shake, in his starters minutes, while he shot the ball well, he's sort of uh, been getting manhandled uh, on defense. Yeah, what I think they're going to have to do is play some kind of pseudo zone where they start forcing uh, the shooters towards more Josh and Matisse who have kind of longer wingspans and are just more apt defensively um, because I don't think Shake can handle Kemba on his own without a ton of attention and help, honestly. Um, I, he's just, he's a, he's pretty much a rookie, definitely doesn't have it in him. And obviously Al is not going to stick with Gordon or Tatum or Brown. He's too big. So I think they're, they're going to kind of do what they always do, which is force guys towards the mid range and hope they miss. And, um, 
I hope they miss. <laughs> so, so the Celtics starting five has been Tice, Tatum, uh, Gordon, Jalen, Kemba. Um, and if the starting five is what you just said, and, and let's, I guess maybe, maybe it's too much of a hypothetical, but let's pretend that the, the Sixers defense is, is pretty heavily man oriented. Mm-hmm. How would you see the matchups lining up at the opening off the opening tip? So my guess would be that the way that they, cause they like to drop in the pick and roll a lot because Embiid is so adept at sort of doing two things at once with the ball handler and at the rim. Uh, I, my guess would be is that they keep Shake on Kemba Walker. They have Richardson on Brown. They have um, Tobias on Tatum. They have Horford on Hayward, and then Embiid and Tice. That would be my guess uh, until until that proves to be like an untenable fit. And they'll give up the three point shot from Tice with Embiid continuing to drop until right. he starts hitting a few of them, and we'll. You know, that'll be kind of the first glaring one, I think. Right, right. You know, the thing about the Celtics is now, you know, Marcus Smart even had a good year from three this year. So it's like, I think that they wish that the Celtics were starting a Tony Allen type where uh, a guy like Horford could be on him, but sort of stick around near the rim and clog the paint. But there really isn't a guy like that uh, that I can see right now. So let me ask uh, a question about the other side of the ball related to Simmons not being in there. Um, Kirk, Kirk Goldsberry had a really good article talking about how Simmons led the league in three-point assists despite being surrounded by, his words, a mediocre crop of shooting talent. Mm-hmm. With him out, his question is, how in the world is this team going to create easy looks? Do you guys go through Al Horford? Do you go through Embiid? Yeah, so it's going to be a lot of Embiid. So I'm sure that the Sixers like the Embiid being guarded by Tice matchup. And I think what they want to do is exploit that until the Celtics have to double. And then it's really on Embiid to find guys quickly and efficiently. Because that he's been a lot better in the bubble at passing out of double teams. But that really needs to stick around against a team like the Celtics. Yeah, that's that's a news story that I thought was really interesting because I think that's a key for for the Philly team. Has Embiid been average at passing out of double teams? How would you assess the last couple of years of that? Yeah, Dan, what would you say? Well, he's definitely gotten better, um, but he's still a little bit awkward. Just when when the double comes, um, the thing with Embiid for a big man, he likes to keep the ball low, which kind of makes for some frustrating possessions. Um, because you can get the guards, especially the scrappy guards like Marcus Smart, they get their hands on the ball. Um, but he has shown himself to be an improved passer when the double team comes. I think the most obvious example was last year in the playoffs against Toronto. He put a pinpoint pass on Jimmy Butler, who made an open three um, in the playoffs last year, and it ended up being a big shot. But uh, just this throughout this year, he's kind of – Learn to keep his head up. I don't think he was ready for what Brad Stevens sent it. Uh, what Brad Stevens sent at him, excuse me, uh, in the 2018 playoffs when they were just going to double everything he did and say, "Okay, Sixers, make a shot." Um, and now that he's uh, now that he's kind of improved and and knows that, especially in the regular season, even he's got an extra practice. Like we're going to come for you. The Sixers shooters have gotten even worse in that series. And they're saying, you know, we're going to come for you and you have to kick out. We're going to even triple sometimes and we're going to make Furkan Korkmaz shoot. I do think that 
he has gotten better kicking out. And especially when it comes to like a um, kind of like, especially because the Celtics seem to be, at least in the bubble, moving away from Cantor and they're going more towards Williams as the backup. And if they're going with a Tice Williams, then they're going to have to double if MB is not just going to back him over. So he's he has gotten better at kicking out, and it's kind of going to come down towards you know Furkan and Shake just hitting their shots and Harris too on that weak side. I think the yeah, sure. you're going to see a lot of Horford dribble handoffs. Uh, Josh Richardson had a big game recently, and in the post game press conference was talking about how easy it is to play with Horford and how good he is at, at that dribble handoff action. Um, and I would I would assume Shake would have you know. That makes Shake's job easier as well. Yeah, but Histori- yeah, you're trying to pound it down low to Embiid the whole time. I would think too. And historically, with Embiid, the turnover problems in double teams happen when he's trying to do too much, and that will really happen if his teammates aren't making shots. So if he feels like the kickout isn't going to result in points, you get worried that he's going to overcompensate and try to drive on two guys and. Uh, so really, that that's that's a big thing that they need to work on, and he just has to trust that these guys who are either like middling to good shooters need to just hit down clean looks. So this this connects a, a bit to a, one of the questions I had for y'all, which is, you know, uh, I I think it's pretty clear from from the Celtics' vantage that the the matchup of greatest concern uh, is is Embiid and how we defend him, right? Um, mm-hmm. Who what matchup do you guys feel best about from your side, especially in the wake of the Simmons injury after Embiid? Emily, what do you think? I really almost feel like Embiid is the only one I feel great about without Ben, <laughs> which is sad. Unless like you guys go Tanner because Joe has historically had issues with him too. Um, but the the thing about that doesn't make me as nervous for the series as bad as like what I just said sounds is, Embiid is the best player on that court mm-hmm. and he, he can take a series over. It'll exhaust him, but he can do it. Um, so yeah, that would be my like, answer. Like maybe, I mean, I'm just like not a huge Gordon Hayward person. Like I would say like, I'm not that worried about if, you know, Al's to guard him or if he switches to like Tobias or someone like that, like I think that they can handle him. But mm-hmm. it's the the Tatum Walker Brown that like swiftness, that athleticism that they all exhibit. Like if you have someone like Shake on them, like I said earlier, or Steve said, like Shake is just young. He gets pushed around a lot. He hasn't. He's like twenty two. He hasn't really built up that like mature muscle mass, and he kind of just gets thrown around sometimes. Um, so yeah, that's what I'd say. Speaking of Embiid getting exhausted, how's his conditioning uh, been looking in in this in this bubble world? He really, I mean, when he was really playing, they pretty much sat him down uh, in the middle of the week, especially after Ben went out. He looked as good as he did this whole season coming out. So uh, coming out of the, into the bubble. So that was like everybody in Philadelphia thinks like, all right, there's four months with no basketball. What is Embiid going to look like when he gets back? And I think that's a fair concern. He's been very open about, you know, having struggled with staying in shape when he's not playing actual basketball games, but he stayed in in good shape. I mean, he had 40 and 20, his very first night back against Indiana. Um, So I have to say like conditioning wise, he actually held up his end of the bargain and he looks as good as he did all year. We've been talking a lot about the Philly team. What questions do you have for us about the Celtics? Oh man. Um, 
I guess I'll start off with one here. Um, basically, what what when you look at the nine man rotation or eight man rotation, who are the guys that you think Brad Stevens trusts off the bench, and how do you guys feel about them uh, as fans? Like, I'm so interested in what the fan temperature is on like the Celtics rotation. We just argued about this on our last podcast. Oh, <laughs> we, we had very different answers. Marcus Smart, Marcus Smart, and Marcus Smart. And that's right, yeah. <laughs> Starting five plus Marcus Smart times three. Um, those six for sure. Uh, my answer also included Ennis Cantor and Rob Williams um, and Brad Wanamaker. And that would be like the the – more or less definite nine. There might be a oh. little bit of overlap in Cantor and Rob Williams, depending on the matchups. Uh, one, one of them might get more of those kind of collective minutes than the other. And then kind of Grant Williams, Shemi Ojale, and Romeo Langford uh, would be in kind of a very matchup dependent kind of grab bag. Um, but that's definitely not the same answer that uh, Josh would give. I think it's closer, Adam, right, to what you would say. Yeah, it's close. Josh, go ahead. Well, I would say that, you know, Grant Williams is probably the guy that Brad Stevens trusts the most coming off the bench besides Smart, um, you know, because he knows he's going to be in the right place defensively. He knows he's going to be a willing passer. He's starting to knock down the threes a little bit more. Um and Romeo just injured his wrist, he sprained his wrist in the game today. So that might be a good excuse not to have to play him at all, even though I and, and many others were clamoring for him to get more playing time. Um, and I think that he would be able to help in the playoff series. But it's looking like that's happened. So I think Mike's answer is, is pretty solid for now. Do you do Celtics fans have a problem? Like, is Brad Wanamaker a, a, a polarizing Celtic? On our yes. podcast, he is. <laughs> I see Brad Wanamaker as a solid backup point guard. He can defend the one and the two fairly well. He can run an offense a little bit. He can hit a decent amount of threes. He's the best free throw shooter in the league. He um, almost never passes on a fast break, although he did last game again for the mm-hmm. second time Whoa. in a row. Whoa. Um, and... But he like if your expectations aren't high enough, then he's fine. He's a solid backup player, but he's yeah. He doesn't do what he can't do, yeah, mm-hmm. which is really nice in a backup. Yeah, but that's an important jo- thing. Josh, what would your answer about Brad Wanamaker be? He's also the <laughs> oldest player on the team. I don't think he belongs on the court right now, just in terms of how he's turning the ball over and the decisions he makes on the fast break. He's but you know he's he's a backup so. I can't have too high expectations of him. Um, I have spent a lot of time hating on him, though, recently. And, but, you know, in the context of this pod, I don't see it being that, like, that important. He's going to mm-hmm. play, but Smart's going to get the backup point guard minutes um, first. So if Wanamaker's playing a lot, it's because someone's getting injured, I think. I like Cantor for a series like this when, you, when the Celtics are playing against good bigs. Um, it's nice to hear that Embiid doesn't do so well against him because I'm still heartbroken that our Embiid stopper, Al Horford, is not on this team anymore. <laughs> um, I think we all agree that a difference, a potential difference maker in this entire playoffs is Robert Williams. If he can, if, if Brad actually trusts him and he plays minutes, he, his athleticism is off the charts and he can be a difference maker uh, on defense and on offense running to the rim. And he can 
I mean, his dunks pump up the entire team and his blocks make people think differently about shooting. But he hasn't gotten much run. It's interesting. And I, I just from watching the team earlier in the year when uh, Capella was still on Houston, Embiid had a really hard time defending him because he was paying so much attention to Harden. Uh, so obviously, like, effectively for you guys would just be Kemba. So if Kemba starts scoring and they're running pick and rolls with Rob Williams, I think that you could definitely see some open lobs for him. Cantor, I think feel like his biggest criticism is, like, pick and roll defense. The Sixers don't really know how to do a pick and roll, so he should be safe. Shake's not, not leading. You know, he's not scorched in that, in that PNR. <laughs> yeah, right. No, Shake, I think, knows how to do them from high school. But Embiid has never been, like, a pick and roll big, and Horford is much more of a pick and pop guy. What else can we tell you about the Celtics? We spent a lot of time. Yeah, so I just want to know. I kind of need some, uh, you know, like affirmation here. So I've always hated the Celtics, but I think it's because every series that they've played that I can remember, because I'm only 21, the Sixers have lost and lost in either an excruciating fashion, like a late game seven where Rondo has two threes in the last quarter, <laughs> or a, and they make a movie about it, of course. <laughs> Or just, like, get absolutely blown off the court in five, but every game feels close, but the Sixers just can't close it. So I I need to know, like, this is a real rivalry. Like, how do you feel about the Sixers? How do you feel about Joel Embiid? And are you kind of annoyed, like, that Al Horford left, even though you kind of, like, you know, maybe you're a little snickering, like, the Sixers signed into a bad contract, but, like, you know, you secretly wish he was still there, like, how how much does this series mean to you guys? Because to me, it means a lot. Like to win this series is huge. Yeah, let's talk about Al Horford. And uh, so we were talking for weeks about how could the Celtics miss Philadelphia in the first round of the playoffs. Philly was the least the team that we wanted to play the least. We were, we match up mm. the worst against Philadelphia, and then Ben Simmons got injured, and that changed things. And so now it it's changed things a lot. I mean, I am still concerned about how we're going to stop Embiid because we can't. Daniel Tice has been phenomenal all season, uh, but he's small and he cannot guard big centers. Cantor is just a, generally a, a minus on defense, and he you only really want him in there when you have a plotting center who's not going to shoot threes to pull him out of the lane. And Robert Williams hasn't had enough run, as as I mentioned. Um, and then we have some other guys that will slide up, but they're not going to guard Embiid. We, we literally have no way to stop yeah, him. I, I think our best options are genuinely Ennis Cantor and Marcus Smart. <laughs> <laughs> Marcus Smart um, has played the five in a number of occasions. Including That's against Embiid. <laughs> including against Embiid. <laughs> oh, I have now is now the right time to say that Josh was really wanting uh, the Celtics to play Taco Fall in the regular season game against Embiid just to test him out. Yeah, I, I almost brought that up earlier, so now is definitely a good time. <laughs> How afraid are you guys of Taco Fall on defense? <laughs> oh, man. Again, no pick and roll, so he might be able to stick in there for a little while. But I'm pretty sure Embiid would get him in foul trouble pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, don't you think that somebody like a Taco Fall or a Robert Williams defending Embiid, you know, someone who is a legitimate shot blocker is kind of the one thing Embiid has not seen or doesn't do well if he goes up against a guy like Bam Adebayo? The thing about Embiid is that his footwork is so good and he is so adept at getting guys to foul him that guys like that that are that are like 
reminds me of when Rashawn Holmes was in Philly, like elite athletes and sort of undisciplined at times. And you can correct me if I'm wrong there, but I think that Embiid is pretty smart at realizing when a guy is going to overplay him. And the guys that I think he struggles with most are Horford and Marcus Gasol, like giant bodies who won't fall for pump fakes. Yeah, Cantor's are closest to that, and he is no Horford or Marcus Gasol on defense. Um, mm-hmm. But so the earlier question about Horford, though, you know, I think I I think all all kind of more diehard. So there, I mean, Horford always had was a little bit polarizing among Celtics fans. There were there was a a large vocal contingent, especially on like Celtics Twitter, that was all about. Al Horford and and I think um, most of the the really plugged in Celtics fans were very very uh, aware of kind of what Horford was adding to the team, but there was always a, a fairly vocal, especially like you know talk radio uh, contingent that mm-hmm. you know felt like he was overpaid and you know his his counting stats were never that impressive and so he was kind of derided. But I think that that first bucket of, of folks was very sad when he ultimately found his way to to Philly um, and didn't re-up with the Celtics. Now, that said, I think as the season has played out, uh, that has helped soften the blow. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Celtics expected to re-sign Horford at a, a lower number than what you guys paid. I think that they traded Aaron Baines to create space in order to to try and do that. And they got surprised when he left. Really? I, that's what I think. Um, now, I don't think they would have paid what you guys did. I mean, he's, he's old enough that it's a huge contract. And he certainly mm-hmm. fits better on the Celtics than he does on the Sixers. I haven't noticed that, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he, we, we I don't him. believe you. <laughs> I, I miss him a lot. I miss him a lot. We've, we've had a running segment on our podcast, podcast called A Hole in the Middle. Because... <laughs> The question has been all year, how are we going to guard other, other players' bigs? Right. So is there vitriol in the, sec- in the Celtics fan base for Horford choosing to go to Philadelphia, which is a rival? Yes. I don't think as much as other Boston sports figures in the past. It's not a Roger yeah. Clemens-level thing at yeah. all. But, but, you know, I think, I think no one even blames him for taking the big contract either. It's just... Uh-huh. It's you know it's not like going to the Yankees I, you know it's not like going to the Lakers it's a little bit less but there's still something there and and he wasn't homegrown so to speak right he he came to us as a free agent kind of played that out and then left but nobody liked him going to the Sixers for sure that that definitely stung but it it didn't even get the same reaction that like com- comparing it to like Ray Allen it's at a totally different level like Ray Allen is basically still not welcome in Boston. Wow. After going to after going to the Heat post, mm-hmm. and he won a championship with us. Uh, Horford, you know, <laughs> I think I think yeah, it, I think if the Sixers had come out this year and were like neck and neck with the Bucks all year, people would probably have harbor harbored more ill will towards Horford. The fact that uh-huh. that didn't happen, I think, has helped. Uh, you know, take take what would have been more sting out of this. I haven't noticed the fan base being upset that he left. Uh, I, I would say the Ray Allen stuff is completely overblown, too, and mostly a Ron, Rajad Rondo-generated issue. 
Um, KG, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And KG, too. Um, but uh, I think Horford also left because he didn't want to play with Kyrie Irving anymore. And he expected him to still be on this team. Really? And Horford, Horford's always had this, like, Tim Duncan type of thing where he's a power forward, not a center. And yeah. if uh-huh. he goes to a team with a legit center, then he won't have to play the five anymore. And so, and that's always been this weird thing. Like he doesn't care about dumb things like that, but for some reason, he's always cared about that. It just doesn't work when that team also has this weird hybrid point guard, power forward, center that can't shoot. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like really? if, you're, if, you're, if your two best players are a point guard who won't shoot and like a seven foot. Back to the basket. Back to the basket. Center. Don't sign another guy who's like six ten and an average three point shooter. So, but you know, Dan. Dan asked the original question about Horford. He needed some some emotional support. You know, so I'm <laughs> here to give that to you, Dan. Horford. There, there's a piece of this that I think we're all missing. This young Celtics team that has all these up and coming superstars on the team. Like, they're not really afraid of many people. They're not triggered by many other teams. Like I could see them going up against a LeBron and not having as much fear, but going up against Horford for some reason, who was kind of like a mentor to these guys, he was the quiet like chief of the team almost in a in a really weird situation. You know, maybe even weirder than the one Horford's in now with Kyrie, and it was just it seemed like they leaned on him, and it seemed in the games like they leaned on him throughout the playoffs the last few years. So. You know, Brad Stevens said in his post-game notes today after the game, he called the Sixers offense the number one offense in the league without Ben Simmons. I'm sure he's got some numbers to back that up. Hmm. But, you know, talking about the front line of Tobias Harris, Horford, and Embiid, you know, that's nothing to scoff at. And, you know, he's basically answering this question, what do we think about the Sixers getting his team ready to not have a big head or to not overlook the Sixers? Not, you know, we got to take them seriously even without Ben Simmons, because the initial reaction is, oh, well, this is going to be an easy series if they don't have Simmons. Um, And I think the main reason for that is Horford. And I wonder how much Horford is thinking about, like, I know not only, like, the weak points of this team, X's and O's wise, but of the personalities on this team. Like, he knows our team inside and out, the whole organization. And I, I think that there's a little bit of fear there, maybe from the players and the coaching staff about, Horford's on the other side now. Yeah, and Emily, tell me if you agree with me, but I feel like in the bubble, Horford has looked as good as he really did all year. What do you think? Oh, I definitely agree. He's looked better than, yeah, he has all year. And I think maybe it's starting to click finally. Is that like what's happening? Is it finally starting to work for us? I can only hope. Um, Not to mention, like, going back to what you guys were all saying about, like, the Sixers and the Celtics and if they're, you know, overlooking the Sixers, but I don't think that not to like be throw shade or whatever, but I don't think that we can overlook the fact that the Sixers won the season series against the Celtics and we're paying Al Horford, you know, $140 million. So we don't have to play him in the playoffs. And we've gone over that defensive matchup with Joel and how, if there's no one that, can take care of him. And if he can take over the series, then I don't know um, how, how you combat that. Um, and if you yeah add in that Al is playing better, I mean, even the vitriol on Twitter, because 
Sixers Twitter does not like Al Horford. And <laughs> I've been seeing some nice things about him on there these days. So it's it's looking up for him um, as a Sixer. And I think it'll be a really interesting series to see how these teams match up with Al as a Sixer without Ben and see what kind of happens there. Yeah, and uh, about two days prior to Ben Simmons' injury, I predicted on our podcast that the Celtics would lose a first-round series to the Sixers. I and has feel, that prediction changed? It has. I feel differently yeah. now. But but I'm still, you know, I I can't remember, sorry, if it was Steve or, or Dan that said this earlier, but uh, yeah, we you know, Embiid is probably the best player in that series. I, I think there's... a a chance uh, that Tatum can elevate and be at that, that place. But um, we don't have a good answer for Embiid. And if you, you also have Simmons on there to kind of put defensive clamps on Tatum, that's a, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough, tough matchup. And to your, to your point, Emily, you know, we did not win the season series for a reason. Um, So, but that has has changed. I feel, I feel more bullish on our chances now. (laughs) Can I ask a Marcus Smart question? Yeah, can I Always. Ask, can I ask? Yeah, we I definitely want we definitely want to answer that. Can I ask two quick Horford questions before we move on from him? Definitely. The first one was in response to what Emily said. Emily, do you think Horford adds more value to the Sixers in this series as a member of the Sixers or because <laughs> he's been removed from the Celtics? Because he's been removed from the Celtics. One hundred percent. I'm I'm ready for the Sixers to sign TJ Warren in the offseason. Like <laughs> I just think we're collecting people that we can't we can't find an answer to. And I I mean we'll see how it plays out, but I think it might be a winning strategy. I'm ready to see it play out. I, I miss him as I mentioned. Should I be grateful that you overpaid him? Um, I don't know. I'm not like one of those we've had this conversation on our podcast that like it's a it the deal's done. There's nothing we can do about it. So we're just gonna lean into it and accept it, mostly on Tobias Harris's deal. But I'll go with that with Al Horford. Like there's nothing I can do about it now. So I'm just <laughs> gonna accept it and be at peace with it because there's plenty of other things about the Sixers that drive me crazy that I can't get into the money that they're making. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, we're happy to spend the rest of the time talking about Marcus Smart. Okay, so from my perspective, uh, Marcus Smart has made every shot he's ever taken against the Sixers, including during the seasons when he shot 30% from the field. So this year he had a good year shooting from beyond the arc. 
as Celtics fans, how do you guys feel when he's rising up to shoot a three? Do you think it's going in or are you saying, I wish he would have passed it? Like, like, what's the emotional response? It's never the best shot. I'm all for anything Marcus Smart does. Yeah, it's a no, 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 yes. <laughs> Every Marcus Smart shot is a no, no, yes shot. Got it. Tommy Heinsohn has said that I think it's Tommy Heinsohn. It may it may have been somebody else that that the all of the threes that Marcus Smart takes are what you have to kind of accept that and give him because he does so many other amazing things. Mm-hmm. But the I mean on the Celtics broadcast a couple of games ago, uh, Brian Scalabrini, who does the the color commentary um, uh, or has been during the bubble and and other, like part time during the the season. Um, had a stat Marcus Smart is number 4 in the NBA on pull-up threes in in terms of percentage at 42%. Uh so he I mean and overall his just his decision making has become just it keeps getting better as he gets old. I mean he's not that old what is he 26 or I think right now 520 somewhere around there. He's, he's not really old but he's a veteran. Um so yeah I'm I'm I have no issue with Marcus Smart at this point pulling up for shots. Certainly younger, uh, it was no, 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 no. At, mm-hmm. at some point in the middle, it was no, 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 yes. Uh, but I think it's even graduated. I, I ride. I think we all ride with Marcus Smart. <laughs> um, and and he's got some really, you know, obviously some magical things that he does with his mind, <laughs> bending the game with his mind in crunch time. Um, whether it's taking a charge or diving for a ball or getting a crucial rebound or boxing somebody out, you know, he'll do all those little things. So, you know, we can't gush enough about Marcus Smart. And the three-point percentage is finally up to league average. Yeah, Marcus Smart and Al Horford shooting the same percentage this year from three. So I'll turn that question back to you guys. What do you think of when Horford rises up and shoots the three? Because I think he's going to need to hit some open threes in this series for you all. Oh, Dan, what do you think? Yeah, so you guys were talking about Marcus Smart being like a no-no-no-yes guy. And it feels like all season Al Horford's been a yes-yes-yes-no guy. player <laughs> <laughs> to me. Um, like, he goes up, and obviously his form almost looks, like, stupid. Like, yeah, like his, his hand's all weird on the ball. And, and as soon as he shoots it, I feel like most guys kind of get a feel when they shoot it, if it's going in or not. And Al Horford shoots the ball. I have no idea if he's making the shot, which is really frustrating, especially because, you know, coming from Boston, he was the guy who was too smart for Embiid. That was kind of his reputation. You know, he was shut down Embiid. And uh, he's come here, and it, and it feels like I can't figure out a shot. He throws some bad passes. Uh, he misses some layups. And – I just I, I don't know what to expect from him. Where in the in the same way I feel like I know what to expect from a lot of the other Sixers, like Furcon, Shake, can be kind of streaky guys. But I feel like when they go up to shoot, I can almost tell. Like you know, he's looking good on this shot. He's looking bad on this shot. And with Al, he's almost the opposite. Like thirty six point something or thirty four point something. Like he's shooting somewhere around like within a percent of league average. Mm-hmm. And um. For Al, who who's a guy who always made his shots against the Sixers, to only like league average, which is fine for a guy his size, kind of seems disappointing, especially when they had plans to spread the floor around Simmons and Embiid. So, um, in, in the way when when he goes up and he's not a bad shooter, he's like kind of a weird shooter, um, and and it, it feels like I just I just don't know when he goes up, whereas other guys I I feel like I do, and. 
and he's shooting enough. Like he he go he shoots when he's open, which is what the Sixers needed from him. And I think he's embraced really well, which which is like kind of what you expect from him. Like he's he's always been sold as like the ultimate team guy, you know, willing to come off the bench, willing to shoot more threes. And he, he shoots him. So I can't even be mad at him. Like, you know, when, when he's open, he shoots him. But but he's he hasn't definitely hasn't been great. You know, when he's open, he's not a knockdown. It's kind of like a I can't even tell till it hits the rim kind of guy, which is which is weird. I feel like it's most guys are not like that at all. This, this conversation just reminded me of um, something about Al Horford. That's actually bad news for us uh, Celtic fans and and good news for you guys, um, which is that Horford demonstrably elevates his game in the playoffs. Um, oh, wow. he, he, he is a big game player. I, I mean, he still kind of mostly does the subtle things, uh, but he does them kind of at a accentuated level. And I just pulled up his basketball reference to make sure I wasn't like just kind of having, uh, you know, green, green tinted memories, but, um, he has shot for his career, and most of this is just the last four years, uh, 41% from three in the playoffs compared to wow. 36% from three um, in the regular season for his career. So he, he is a notably better three-point shooter or has been, uh, and, and he's my my general memory, and I don't know, Adam and, and Josh, if, if this was your recollection as well, but is that he he does bring it in the playoffs. He also oh, yeah. is better the more rest he has. Yes. He shot 52% in the playoffs from three in 2017. Um, he's There's no question in my mind he's going to show up ready to go for these playoffs and be one of the better players on the court unless he just can't because he's declining because of his age, which I just don't see that happening quite yet. This is making me feel worse about the series. Can we change the subject? <laughs> so no, so that's the next question for for you all is, you know, if Horford comes out and he's hitting a bunch of threes and he's playing confidently and he's defending well, do you think you all have a chance? I yeah, I think the answer is yes because the question is really about the non-MB guys, are they hitting threes? Because if he has room to operate and perform at his maximum capacity, I do think that they have a chance. Like, uh, I think that the Simmons thing is obviously takes a lot out of their sales, especially on defense and in transition. But uh, I, I would think that that gives them uh, a pretty decent chance at Horford. But honestly, the the if Al can also switch on defense and guard smaller guys, I think that that would be just as big, right? What do you think, Emily? Yeah, I agree. I think I tend to be fairly optimistic. It's not until the games start that I like enter my doldrums of despair. Um, So I would say that I'm fairly optimistic about this as well. And I think it goes back to what Steve was saying about the Sixers hitting threes. And we have enough guys that can get hot, I think. And so it's just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that they get hot on those nights. Because if we have to, you know, be putting Mike Scott there, or Alec Burks or someone who's just like hitting threes, I think we have enough of those guys that could, for God's sake, just to get hot for a night. Like that's really all we need. And then to give Joe the room to work on his basket. Should we be concerned about Shake Milton's three-point shot? 
Always. Shake is uh, I, like a very good shooter. Yeah. Uh, Derek Bodner of The Athletic wrote, wrote something during the quarantine or when it became evident that Shake was going to be the starter that for his whole life, you know, college, high school, everything, he's been a really consistent shooter from deep. So what I think he lacks in defense and in just like body strength, uh, and and especially defensive savvy against a guy like uh, Kemba Walker, I, I really think that his shooting numbers are real. And uh, it, obviously, you have to wait and see about a guy that young. But I definitely think his shooting is for real. What other questions do you have for us? Uh, Dan, go ahead. This is something we talked about, and I, I think it was originally Steve's question, but I had the same question. And it was um, kind of – I know for something the Sixers have – Sixers fans have thought about a lot – was draft night this year when the the Sixers took Matisse Thibel and we kind of all felt really good about it, and he's had a nice year, but it also felt like the Sixers really telegraphed who they wanted and Danny Ainge kind of outsmarted Elton Brand on that one. So how do, how do the Celtics fans feel about um, giving up Matisse Thibel on draft night um, in exchange for getting an extra pick that became – Carson Edwards, who I knew a lot of Sixers fans wanted, but ended up not not playing a huge role this year. Mike, I'll let you take the Carson Edwards question. Yeah, I'm not I'm not big on Carson Edwards, uh, to say the least. I'm I'm uh, not convinced he's ever going to be a, a real NBA player, um, and he definitely isn't right now. Um, we live in a state of plausible deniability or willful ignorance about the draft day trade that landed us with Grant Williams and Carson Edwards in lieu of either Brandon Clark or Matisse Teibel. Uh, at least I personally do. <laughs> I choose to believe that alternate reality, <laughs> those alternate realities don't exist. <laughs> yeah, on, draft, on draft night, was that well looked upon by Celtics fans? Were Celtics fans feeling good about that? Or what was the reaction? Uh, we were excited about the concept of getting those two picks. But mm-hmm. then I think, I, you know, I'm pretty sure we, not not getting Brandon Clark, I think, was what personally upset me in the moment at the time. Uh, and nothing about how Brandon Clark's season went changed my mind about that reaction. Uh, Matisse yeah. Teibel is super exciting as a you know as a defensive player. He's from my perspective, he's just kind of a bit duplicative of what we already have with Marcus Smart. Mm-hmm. That said, I don't know if you can have too many like weirdly athletic super effective elite defensive players on your team so you know it would be very easy to be excited about him if he was on the celtics yeah so the based on the past two years of the celtic sixers relationship i feel like the matisse thibel trade to celtics fans was like an i'm sorry card like <laughs> after leaving a burning bag of poo on your doorstep like the fultz for tatum trade and the the horford signing are are just i mean i don't want to go into all the 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 sixers uh failings recently but you know the last two years the celtic sixers relationship has been close in that way and i feel like just just looking at the tatum for fultz thing i mean i feel so bad about that that you guys can have Matisse Thibel. yeah i will say on draft night at least in sixers world it didn't feel like a win sixers fans were pretty upset about draft night. Everybody wanted Thibel, but the fact that they had telegraphed it so hard that they needed to trade with Boston to get him. And then they went on to like sell a million second round picks. It was just, it was a very frustrating night. Um, even if, San, even if uh, 
fans wanted uh, Thibault, but uh, fans were very into Carson Edwards, especially for his skill set on on our team. So it was a bummer to see him chosen by the Celtics that night. His skill set would fit our team too if he actually had that skill set. <laughs> uh, I I was a huge fan of Matisse Thibel. The only question I had about him was about um, whether his stats would translate from that Washington zone defense to the more man-to-man NBA. Mm-hmm. But he seems like an awesome guy, a great defender, and his shot's not bad. Yeah, I mean, he's a great blogger, which is important. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Everybody seems to love him, and I, I feel like the shot is going to improve over time because he's a hard worker. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on him long term. What do you guys think of the vlog? Oh, I mean, Emily, do you want to lead this? We love the vlog. <laughs> yeah, we do love the vlog. We talk about the vlog every week, and we pray that he's going to release a new one. Um, <laughs> we we just like I think a lot of players are doing like them like when I see like my recommended videos on YouTube there's always like other players but Matisse's have really caught on I don't know if it's because he's letting us into like every part of the bubble whether it's the testing the food the practice but also like a lot of the the social issues that the players are focusing on when they're down there which I think is really important and I think it's they've just been great I am Matisse's dad's number one fan he is just a ray of sunshine, and it shows you where he gets it. Um, but yeah, we love him. Yeah, let me ask the the part about the social issues. You know, when you have Tobias Harris up at the whiteboard, you know, graphing things out with mm-hmm. um, blanking on the your backup center's name with the big beard, Kyle Quinn. Kyle yeah. Quinn. Yeah, so, he's also you know, you got- a point guard, apparently. I love Kylo Quinn as a backup center. I think he's a great passer for his position. He's, he would be like a poor man's Aaron Baines for us. I think he would actually help guard and be. Doesn't he not play defense? I, I thought that's why he got like out of the rotation in Orlando and, and the Knicks of all teams. Well, like he always hard. comes in and rebounds and passes and, and, but then uh, the other side of the ball always got so, him in trouble. So historically, his advanced stats have always been like pretty incredible. Like in small minutes, he's always been a very effective player. This season, he's had like this awful plus minus. But I think that really is because he's only played in mop up time, and uh, so I don't think this year is very indicative of what he can actually do. But uh, he certainly seems like a well loved teammate. And so you know, in these vlogs. You've got a bunch of guys around the table here having a really important conversation almost as a team, and you don't have Embiid or Simmons in the room, at least based on the, the videography of it. Is that a concern? Like, I kind of read into things like that. Like, where are those guys? Aren't they supposed to be the leaders of the team? It's so interesting that you asked that because the, the question I was going to ask was, we've heard that the, t- that the players don't like each other, and how would you characterize <laughs> those interpersonal problems? And what's the impact on the team and on the court? Um, so I'll just, I'll speak. And then, uh, Dan, if you want to piggyback off this, but in terms of the social issues, I think that some guys are more versed in speaking about it. Ben Simmons has actually been very vocal, uh, about politics sort of like, uh, since he went to LSU and everything like that. But in terms of leading the charge there, it's, it's certainly been Tobias Harris. Tobias Harris has been a real connector and a leader that kept everybody together um uh in terms of them not liking each other i i can't help but feel like that is more overblown than actually real i mean 
Uh, I think that NB just did the uh, Right to Ricky Sanchez pod t- podcast and uh, unprovoked, he said how much he loved Simmons and wants to play with him for his whole career. And uh, But I understand, you know, they are not a perfect offensive fit. It, it makes sense. And Simmons refusing to shoot certainly doesn't help matters. But uh, yeah, Dan, what do you think about, you know, them not leading the charge uh, in terms of these issues? Yeah, no, I, I think it is it's really understandable. I I think everyone's really supportive of each other on the team. But if you look at um just kind of obviously uh this is not something I can personally speak to um as just kind of like a white man in America, but um just from what I hear from a lot of other players and just um just from like trying to, you know, broaden my horizons in in general and hearing from other people that you know, it is different to be, you know, an African-American versus, you know, someone of African descent who comes to America. Um, it seems to be a different experience. So it makes sense that you know, Simmons is from Australia and Embiid is from Cameroon, that other players are leading on these issues. But I don't think that means that they're not supporting their teammates on the issues. And um, especially uh, you look at um, when, when you talk about um, like how the, the on-court fit versus you know, how they get along. Um, there's a lot of talk about like, um, at least in, in the Sixers, you know, online community, there's a lot of jokes about, you know, when when Mitchell and Gobert mm-hmm. seem to be fighting about, um, you know, Gobert got everyone sick on the jazz and everyone was mad at him. And there were the reports like, Mitchell doesn't even want to talk to him. And, you know, the national story was like, oh, they'll, they'll work it out. They'll be fine. And then MB goes on, as you know, oh, I love Ben Simmons. I want to play with him the rest of my career. And all the questions are, you know, like which one should they keep and which one should they trade? <laughs> possibly coexist and they hate each other. So I, I I think it's understandable that they're not leading on this particular issue. I think they're still leaders on the court and definitely leaders in the community. I mean, on other issues, Embiid was leading. He donated a lot for um, uh, COVID um, when it came to antibody tests. And Embiid, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, Simmons, is still very outspoken on political issues. Um, just maybe not particularly this one, but still did speak out. Just Tobias happened to be like the leader on the team. And when it comes to um, just kind of getting along on the team, I, I do think it's overblown, like Steve said, because um, just if you trust their own words, which there's no reason not to, they do seem to get along even better than a lot of other players who everyone just counts as, oh, they'll be fine. Okay, so forget whether they like each other or not or the fit on the court what bothered me about that was they weren't even in the room and the you know just from a leadership perspective you've got Embiid he's always trying to get attention on social media um Ben Simmons has always seemed to me kind of for lack of a better word as like a pretty boy like I feel like I'd put him with Kyle Kuzma and Lonzo Ball in that like new generation NBA pretty boys who are, who are kind of a distraction or distracting he's, themselves. He's definitely pretty. I just want to make sure that people know that he's very handsome. We talk about that a lot. So aren't these distractions that, I mean, even the, the Kendall Jenner thing, you know, the dating her and, and whatever that entails, you know, for your lifestyle and, uh, and then the breakup that must've been hard. Like these are, aren't these distracting from your two best players being able to be the best leaders they can? Or really focusing um, on the right things? I kind of don't care who they date. I think that, that you know, for me, I they can date a Jenner or a whoever. I, you know, the, the I think that it's 
very fair to criticize Ben for not shooting and for not shooting free throws well and all that. And I think that you can extrapolate that into he's not working hard enough on that and not being uh, sort of reflective enough to, to deal with that. And I think that Embiid is not an uh, unassailable leader. I think that he uh, – there are a lot of reports about how actually like introspective and like shy he is off of the court you know, and off of social media. So uh, I definitely think that he has uh, room to grow in that capacity too. Emily, do you have anything to add in terms of, you know, basically with that question there? Yeah, um, I agree with you, especially about Joel. Like he says that all he wants to do, like all he does is like he's either on FaceTime with his family and friends or he's playing video games. Like he's not that guy that's like out in the bubble, like mixing it up with other players and like do like he's not going fishing. He's not doing any of that. So I just don't think that I think he focuses more on like leading on the court versus um, out in the community or he if he does do things in the community, he kind of keeps them under wraps. He's not like a big like it's always like a story, you know, like Joe was seen at like a church in Philly or Joe was at, you know, running the streets, playing tennis. Like he's not that guy that like draws attention to the things he does. I think he really does just want to kind of be a normal person as normal as a seven foot basketball superstar can be. And as for Ben, I think that Ben's star is a little bright with the LeBron James and the Rich Paul of it all. Um, so I think that he just has a lot of other people working like his business interests than Tobias and Matisse do. So they kind of like spearhead things themselves where I think Ben has a lot of people working on his team that does a lot of that spearheading and a lot of those things kind of sets them up for him with him as his interests go. And he doesn't necessarily have to do that, that legwork himself. I don't know if that's good or bad, or even if that's true, I'm really speculating here. Um, but just looking at the brand of Ben Simmons versus the brand of Tobias Harris or Matisse Thibel, I think they're really different things. Yeah, and 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 I definitely think in a perfect world, I would love Ben and Joel to be like the absolute like full-throated leaders, you know, both in the community and, you know, calling team meetings and all that stuff. And I think that, you know, it partially shows their youth and it also, I think, just shows their personalities if they're not. Uh, completely leading the way on that. So, yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, they would be the ones at the whiteboard. Uh, but I don't think that on every winning or contending team, it's always the most vocal guys are your best guys. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, I agree with that last statement wholeheartedly. I think I think it's what, you know, uh, not a Celtic or a 76er here, but I think it's probably something that LeBron James doesn't get enough credit for. It's It's pretty rare to be like, superhuman talented at something as LeBron is at basketball and also be as much of kind of a, a social leader and civil, you know, civil rights leader uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, leader for uh, youth empowerment and kind of economic uh, enfranchisement as LeBron has been. And, and so um, I think it's pretty oftentimes you, you kind of, you know, the way, teams and groups form and operate as you kind of have the quote unquote stars or like the, the, the people that are really excel in a certain discipline. And then you kind of have the, the glue guy types, right. That end up being a bit more agile in the way they fit within the group dynamics. And they can Mm -hmm. often kind of be part of that, the leadership for some of these more, you know, social or, or horizontal uh, type issues. 
Um, and I think that's almost far more normal than getting your superstars to be right out front. Um, Adam or Josh, are there anything else you guys wanted to say on this subject? Because I wanted to kind of segue a little bit here. Yeah, I think we ha- we have some uh, longer term questions or more irreverent questions. Are there any questions that are more focused on this series before we move on to that stuff on, on either side? Uh, yeah, I actually would want to know uh, what, in your opinion, from like knowing the Celtics' weaknesses and knowing the Sixers' roster, how who would you start? Like, would you guys start Horford or Thibel or, you know, one of the Maz burks combination? What would you do if you were trying to win the series for the Sixers? I'm pretty sure I'm much less afraid of a Sixers starting lineup with Horford. Mm. Uh, that's how I feel right now. Uh, that could change very quickly over the course of game one. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, because I feel like having Thibel on the court... Um, puts the Sixers in a really strong defensive, uh, in the strongest possible defensive position against our starting lineup. Uh, it's a question. It's a question about whether you play to uh, match up well with the other team or to right. take advantage of, of your, of how you, of the mismatch. And I, I don't have a good answer. I'm not sure. No, I think this is an easy answer. You have to play the guys. You have to lean on the guys who are the better players and the more experienced players, especially guys like Horford. Horford has to start. He has to play well. Tobias has to play well. You got to go to Embiid inside and hope that guys are hitting shots off of double teams or kickouts. Um, you know, it's going to have to be old school inside out kind of basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I, I see that as the only chance you got. Once you start putting Furkan Korkamaz and Alec Burks in the game, Stevens is going to go right at those two with right. Gordon Hayward, Tatum, Brown, any one of our, our larger wings. You know, we're going to go at those math, matchups. Isn't that why you need Horford with them? Like to shore up some of that defense? Yeah, you're going to want to play Horford 35, 40 minutes a game. Um, but, you know, the Celtics are notorious recently for going at J.J. Redick, who was in the starting lineup. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we know Forkan Korkmaz is a terrible defender. He may take some charges. But, you know, he's not as good as Ilyasova was even at that. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you know, we're going we're gonna to be attacking those bench miss matches and – you're going to have to lean on on guys having good games who are the better players on the team. I'll miss Jalen isoing on JJ Redick and Ilyasova. Those were those were fond memories. Brett Brown. I mean, what do you, do you is he do you, is this if you guys win the season are you guys rehiring Brett Brown or is he gone no matter what what? If we are you saying if we win the title? If you win uh, I mean if you win the title you got to keep him. If you win this series and then lose the next one the writing's already been on the wall that he's gonna. This is his last year. I mean, you'd have to assume he's done after this, right? Or are you yes. rehiring him? No, no. So I think that, um, uh, and Dan and Emily, let me know if you disagree on this. But in my opinion, I think that he's gone unless the Sixers play in the finals. I feel like wow. uh, Josh Harris and the rest of uh, the Sixers front office. Uh, has sort of been looking for a reason to get rid of Brett for a while. Uh, at the beginning of last year's playoffs, Elton Brand and Josh Harris held a press conference where they refused to endorse Brown after after the playoffs. Um, and then the Kawhi shot happens in Game 7, and I think it just sort of muddied the waters to the point where – and the players all seemed to really like Brett and, and sort of went to bat for him uh, when they were cleaning out their lockers. So, yeah, I think that – Brett's time in Philly, unless they really win the East, has probably met its end. 
Why, why does the ownership not support Brett Brown? Why don't they like him? So there were all sorts of there's, – there's so much palace intrigue with this stupid team that it's hard to keep track. But uh, the Colangelos came in, and there were whispers that they actually wanted to just go ahead and appoint Mike D'Antoni as the head coach. But, you know, Harris sort of was wish-washy on that, and they kept him around. They've never seemed fully uh, into Brett ever since the Colangelos took over. And then uh, after that, there were just all these whispers from – uh, I think Shams and, and other reporters and uh, Mark Stein, I think, had something in that series while they were playing Toronto that unless the Sixers made the Eastern Conference Finals, that Brown was going to be uh, fired. So I really think that they've been looking for a reason for a while. And I don't think that they'll say, well, it was a COVID year and, well, you know, Simmons didn't play. I, I, I don't think they'll do that. I think that uh, this will probably be it. But between Josh Harris... Elton Brand and Brett Brown, who do you have the greatest amount of confidence in? Oh, Dan, do you want to take that one? Yeah, um, pretty easily Brett Brown, uh, despite yeah. the fact that I agree with everything Steve just said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I hoped your guys' answer was going to be. <laughs> yeah, I do. I agree. You know, it's probably, you know, they probably will move on and it's probably time to move on. Um, I mean, it's been seven years and it does seem like, you know, there's not as much buy-in as you would hope. And while Brett has kept guys, you know, through all kinds of personnel changes and personalities motivated throughout the years, this year seems like that just wasn't true like it was in past years. Um, and it probably is time for a move on. But if you're going to compare him to Josh Harris, who I hate, <laughs> and Brand, who I think has done a, just a horrible job, yeah, I'll take that any day of the week. I mean, there's, there's a lot of dispute about um, – and, and Steve can testify more to this because I know he's talked to Yaron Weissman, uh, who wrote the book, but um, just how much power Elton Brand even has because it seems like Josh Harris has trusted a lot of the marketing guys more than the actual basketball guys. Um, but either way, I'm, I'm going to blame whoever is, you know, by name in charge of the front office, and that happens to be Elton Brand uh, for the Tobias overpay in the trade and signing and the Horford signing over Jimmy. Um, and just for, for Josh Harris, a guy who I think is just a not great person and not great owner. Um, yeah. I'll take Brett any day easily. <laughs> Wait, so hold on. Let me, let me, let me touch a little bit on this Brett Brown thing. Cause I think this is really interesting. Brett Brown, you know, obviously he's a Popovich disciple, but he spent a long time, I think 17 years or something coaching, in Sydney, in Australia, and he coached Ben Simmons' dad. Mm -hmm. So when when you know Brett Brown was kind of an unlikely guy to get that job in Philadelphia, and then a couple of years later they get the top pick and they draft Ben Simmons. And so I'm wondering how much of this was, you know, he's a, a family friend, close family friend and mentor to Ben Simmons. You know, known him his whole life. Simmons goes on to the Sixers and has his ideal dream coach, who understands the culture that he came from in Australia but is also a legitimate basketball coach, you know, and, and they kind of trusted that that relationship would win them games or was the right decision or a good situation. And it proved for, you know, all the, a lot of different reasons not to work out. And so now it's like, I'm, I'm wondering, have they kept Brett Brown around for longer than they really should have just because of the relationship with Ben Simmons and not wanting to lose Simmons? I, that honestly, day to day, that, their particular uh, history and the longevity of that relationship does not come up a ton. 
uh, I know that the guys like Brett and uh, that's definitely, you know, a big thing that they actually just like him as a human. Um, but for me, it's more, you know, Brett was here from the beginning of everything and on an emotional level, he's such an easy guy to root for. Um, but I just think that you can be somewhere a little bit too long. And, and honestly, Brett, I feel like with those rosters, the past few, few years, he wasn't perfect. And, uh, your own write about some, wrote about some, uh, failings that he had as a disciplinarian, especially when, uh, Joel was younger and, and sitting out multiple years. Uh, but they won, you know, 53 games with the two of them in Ben's rookie year, which nobody expected them to do. Um, he really helped develop guys like Robert Covington and, you know, TJ McConnell's in the league and going to be in the league, Jakar Sampson. You know, there, there are these sort of graduates of the process that I feel like Brett was the perfect coach for then. And I just think that the Sixers might be growing out of Brett's, you know, reach in terms of, in terms of actually taking the leap to win a championship. Yeah, he's a rah-rah guy, a positivity coach. He's mm-hmm. – and a development guy, you know, but right. the X's and O's that to answer your question, Adam, what, what do people not like about him? The X's and O's and the decision making adjustments game to game maybe aren't there on a championship level. Um, I, I think you could look no further than just the idea to put Simmons at the four and starting shake Milton. Like that's a huge adjustment to kind of make last minute like this. Um, you know, consistency is really what's going to win you and, and, uh, championships even let you go deep in the playoffs and it seems like those kinds of shake-up solutions are grasping for straws yeah i wanted to you, say one thing real quick if that's all right um like i know like kind of building off of what steve said i know the original question was about um brett's relationship with ben but i know for me personally and i and i think it's true for a lot of sixers fans when after the Kawhi shot uh last summer then the question was you know Will Brett be back? Uh, the first thing that came to mind to me was that um, when Joel came over here, he was dealing with, you know, a ton. Obviously, he's written a lot about his time in high school, but especially once he came into the league and was injured for two years and and his, his brother died and it was just a horrible time for Joel. Um, and it's kind of become clear that Brett became almost like a father figure to Joel. Um like a second father figure to him and um, Joel and Brett kind of have a really, you know, good relationship, a close relationship. And so when, when the question was, you know, will Brett be back the next season after last year? Um, the first thing I thought of was like, you know, what are we, what is this, what kind of message is this sending to our franchise center? And even not just message wise, but like, you know, personal relationship wise like i hope he would be okay with that like i i hope that he would be comfortable enough here to kind of deal with a change in in head coach um and as it as it turned out you know brett stayed but a lot of joel's close friends on the team like jimmy and jj left which was frustrating especially in retrospect but um i think that's that's the big one for me even more than ben is that um that Brett has kind of been that guy for Joel and, and it will be sad when I think ultimately he does leave. Yeah, I agree with Dan. Um, just to piggyback off of that, I think it's really important when we do ultimately move on from Brett that they do it the right way and they involve Joel and Ben in that decision-making because uh, Joel 
was recently on JJ Reddick's new podcast and was saying how he didn't like how Jimmy and JJ left basically and that he was like half checked out and like not in the right headspace for most of the season because he just like didn't feel comfortable with the new system and didn't feel the passion for the game like so I think if he is you know as close as we all think he is to Brett and looks up to him like he does we I would hope that the front office and ownership would really involve those two in that decision, both in letting them know that they're moving in a different direction and also in that decision-making process of who they're bringing in for like the ultimate chemistry fit, because I think that that's really important, especially with young guys, like maybe as veterans, you're kind of used to that switching of, of, of styles of play or things, anything like that. But these guys are still young and, I think especially Joel sees the Philadelphia staff and teammates as a family over here. So I think, I just think it's important that he have some type of input and stake in the game. This is getting sad. <laughs> it is. Welcome to Sixers <laughs> fandom here. Can I ask you guys a question about last year? Yeah. So last year, the thing with Kyrie happened, obviously, and that was a, a debacle that pretty much lasted the full year. Do do Brad Stevens and Horford or uh, Brown and Tatum are obviously younger. Did Kyrie shoulder all of the blame for that? Obviously, you guys have had a much better year this year. Do you really think that it was just him or were other people and sort of systems uh, to blame as well? I think, I think that, you know, um, there was definitely a, an acknowledgement that some of the blame uh, fall, fell on Brad Stevens. Some of the blame f- fell on Danny Ainge for mm-hmm. how the team was constructed. Um, maybe a modicum of blame goes on the young guys, but they're young. You know, you know they are right. younger. And, and frankly, for as young as they are, they're highly professional uh, and, and um, polished. But I, I think there was definitely a, re- at least from where I'm sitting, there's definitely a recognition that there are things Brad Stevens could have done better with that set of players. Um, and there's ways the team could have been better constructed to make Brad's job way easier. Um, uh, but, you know, Kyrie is a type of personality that even when something doesn't need to be about him, somehow manages to skew it around him. Uh, he's got a lot of gravity to his personality. So uh, he did bear a large share of blame, and I don't think that's entirely mm-hmm. inappropriate. Well said. I, I mean, I, Terry Rozier, uh, Danny Ainge constructed a roster. Oh, yeah, I forgot about Terry Rozier. That was nice. <laughs> Remember that that guy? was nice for me. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed that. <laughs> Danny Ainge constructed a roster where uh, – Every that resulted in everybody wanting a larger role than they had, and some people were better about uh, accepting that than others. Rozier struggled a lot with that, um, but I still put a lot of the blame on on Kyrie. He's he was the one that wanted his own team. He was the one that wanted to be the leader, and he got the opportunity, and it, it did not go well. Right, I think that makes sense. Yeah, but I mean, after the sometime in the off season, like. Ainge came out in an interview basically acknowledging he probably should have moved one or two people at the tra- like Rozier at the trade deadline to kind of thin out the roster a little bit, or at least acknowledging that he certainly could have done that and made Brad's job easier. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Brad Stevens, I think, is, is more or less uniformly loved, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, uh, 
amongst Boston Celtics fans, but one of his, well, arguably weaknesses, I think it's quite intentional for him, is that he he really tries not to create any sort of uh, established pecking order. Uh, he does, he will say like, these guys are our starters and Marcus Smart gets like looped into that. And so we basically have six starters. Um, and then, mm-hmm. so there's a, a, a bit of an informal pecking order uh, that is meant to evolve organically. Um, that kind of management approach combined with the team construction that uh, Ainge put together last year was, were not compatible so Ainge created, like Adam just said, the system where everybody wanted kind of more. Everybody thought they should be the ones, quote unquote, organically stepping up into a larger role. And you just, you know, Stevens is just not wired to saying, look, it's going to be these three guys and you guys are going to be just less. I, I just mm-hmm. don't think he kind of explicitly puts people in those roles because he wants teams to kind of take their natural shape but the natural shape of that team was dysfunction <laughs> Got it. and Kemba Walker is a far better fit than Kyrie Irving I think most Celtics fans would rather have Kemba and Kyrie oh my god yes <laughs> Kyrie is a far more talented player Josh you had a bunch of irreverent questions oh yeah I mean I heard that the Sixers uh, Philadelphia 76ers fan depression was recently submitted to the American Psychological Association <laughs> to be added to the DSM-4 so my question to you is, is this pathology like hereditary? And are there any commonalities between Sixers fans and Knicks fans with the troubles they've endured? You know, it's funny. We talked about this uh, last weekend on the podcast. And I, and I asked Emily and Dan, like, is it us? Because if you were to just like follow along with Sixers Twitter during a Sixers game, you would always think that they're down 20. Like even if we're up four, it, it feels bad. So I, I do think that there is an underdogness of Philadelphia that is sort of baked into our uh, our, our, our sports know-how. Uh, but also this particular team, everything, it reminds me a bit with, you know, with less locker room issues, but like just of, of more of a slog, you know, like we went from the process where we didn't even want them to win. But it was hilarious if they won or if they did something good. And now this year, you expect them to win every game. Uh, so it becomes much harder as a viewing experience. And then when you factor in that we're from Philadelphia, everything is harder. So, Emily, Emily, how do you feel about that? <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. I think that the the key point is the expectations. Um, they are so high. Like, now I'm seeing articles that are, like, the biggest, like, disappointment of the NBA season is the Philadelphia 76ers. And I'm like, yeah, that seems about right. That's how we feel too. Like it's, and it is, it goes, I think it's like part of the, the city, you know, we're, we're hardworking and we try to grind it out and it's just not working for us this year, but yeah. So would you guys hire Sam Hinkie to clean up this mess? I would hire Sam Minky to be my father. I, I love him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can do whatever he wants. The, the parenting process. <laughs> wow. like, great answer. <laughs> my real dad doesn't know how to listen to a podcast, so I think I'm in the clear. I I, I had a I had a uh, somewhat irreverent question. Which which Celtic do you guys hate the most? Ooh, and Dan, Dan this can be all to... time. But I I want to know for the current team as well. Okay. I want I want both. <laughs> If you're going to do all time, Dan, what do you think? Yeah, so I'm probably I could probably speak much better to the current team since I'm 
just not old enough to really appreciate the series. But uh, on the current team, uh, when the game is on, I cannot stand Marcus Smart. And I mean that in the nicest way because if he was on the Sixers, I would love the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but oh my god, he's he's so annoying when he when he uh, when he goes at it with Embiid. And I know Embiid sold it. This was last year, and and I know he flopped. But oh, he totally. Flopped. I mean, that's a that's a flop off. That's a, a, a that's a flop off championship right there he between totally those two. I know it, but oh my, I cannot stand the guy. And and he's so good. And I know he's so good, and I wish he was on the Sixers, but he's so annoying. And um, but really, the, the he's the one who like when the game is on, I'm not thinking about anything else. I I can't stand him. But just in general, like from keeping up with the Celtics, and especially this year, because I, I really didn't expect the Celtics to be, you know, doing as well as they are. It's like oh great, Celtics win again, Sixers lose again. You know, Sixers are the Sixers, Celtics are the three this series for a reason, um, and. It's so frustrating that Tatum is doing so well and uh, not trying to uh, bring up Markel Fultz again. I mean, you know, he's he's doing his thing. And how did we even... not even ask about that until like, <laughs> how did we're too yeah. nice? We were too way too nice. <laughs> but, yeah. You know what? I, just, I, I cannot. Every time it happens, I, you know, Tatum did this. And, you know, when he goes, you know, you know, two for 18 or one for 17, I'm feeling really good about myself. You know, it's like, ah, oh, that's hilarious. You know, Tatum stunk it up tonight and that happened twice this year. I was going to say, there, yeah, there was like one or two of those games. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, Milwaukee and then once earlier against Dallas. But, the, you know, most of the year, all I see is, you know, Tatum playing well and then all the national talk is like, you know, Tatum's an all-star this year. You know, Tatum's going to be one of the best two-way players in the league next year. And I'm like, wow, you know, we got Jonathan Simmons for bolts. So, uh <laughs> <laughs> Tatum works out every offseason with your boy Embiid, so you know they got the same trainer. You could have had teammates, you know, working out all summer too. Yeah, well, Fultz well, is with Marco. Yeah, and yeah, don't you remember those super secret videos of like showing him queuing up for the free throw but not actually taking the shot? <laughs> I think Mike Levin said it was shot like softcore pornography. It was like it showed a little, but just enough. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think you, well, Dan, you already answered the other side of this, the question I had, which is which Celtic do you secretly respect? And it sounds like Marcus Smart is the answer there. Are there, are there any others for you guys or, uh, is that, Personally, is that I the... love Jalen Brown. I think he's awesome. And I, uh, I don't have the same thing. Like, I feel like I need to be rooting against Tatum, uh, all the time. And, and Brown, of course I'm rooting against him, but as a guy and just as a player, I just really like him. And he's like the kind of player that I really love. Emily, who, who do you respect over there for the Celtics? Um, yeah, I kind of real. I mean, I really wish we had Marcus Smart as well. I would go with Dan's answer. Yeah. Um, but as far as who I hate, I know he's not a Celtic anymore, but I just want to put it out there. I really hate Aaron Baines. What? He, <laughs> yeah. I miss him terribly. Yeah, we I, love Aaron Baines. We love yeah, all of Aaron Australia. Baines love to kill the Sixers, too. And I just, every time he just made me so mad, I would, yeah. uh, I'm glad he's not a Celtic anymore, but I just wanted to put it into the ethos how much I hate Aaron Baines. What about you guys? Which Sixers do you respect or hate or love or loathe? What do you got? Embiid is the answer for me for both. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, he he does. He has like the Marcus Smart phenomena for us. Right. It's yeah. like 
you you hate all his dancing and acting and theatrics as an opponent, but you you can't have anything but respect for how good he is. It's a little different. Like he he is bombastic, but it's not, he doesn't have the same grittiness to it. It's like it's like I'm a star because because he's far more talented than Marcus Smart and and you take that back and so much better. <laughs> <laughs> so he's so good and there's just no way to stop him and honestly i'm just i continue to wait for his next injury which uh i think is gonna all right bad. guys we have to go thank you <laughs> <laughs> hey you guys you guys play a fun game on your podcast called the most likely game yes you guys have any most likely questions all right well let's see well one of the ones i think our closest one last pod so uh, me, me and Emily were pretty close on this one, uh, and Emily beat me out, and I'm still a little salty about it. Was uh, uh, which which player on the Celtics is most likely to get their heart broken in a relationship? <laughs> well, Marcus Smart, like almost severed a tendon in his hand last season because he punched or like threw his fist into a picture. My uh-huh. understanding was it was related to to a relationship. Oh, I didn't know that. Am Wait, I, is that true? I don't. I don't recall that. I think you're making. I think you're I'm making not making it up. I'm not intentionally making it up. <laughs> I believe that's what happened. Unintentionally. <laughs> I think Marcus that, loves hard, and takes loss just <laughs> equally hard. I see that with him. I, I do see that. Yeah, interesting. Um, I would say I would say Gordon Hayward, easily the most shakeable of all the Celtics. Mm, yeah, but he he's in a solid relationship with Robin. Like they're they're know, tight. Let him play enough uh, video games like he wants. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Gosh. Okay. Here's uh, one. Yeah. Here's one. Um, which Celtic do you think would plan the best bachelor party for one of you? Oh, Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart sure. seems like the most fun. He's playing pranks this, on Marcus everybody, Smart is the and he's a leader. Like he's just gonna he he's he's gonna know what to do. He's he's gonna be out in front of that. Or unless you yeah. want something like just totally random and crazy, then I might go with like Time Lord with Robert Williams or something. Like well, you, you just don't Cantor? know what you're gonna get. Uh-huh. And his Cantor, Cantor could be fun. Cantor could be fun. So Grant Williams guys... would give you the nerdiest yeah. bachelor party. <laughs> yeah, my, I would say Marcus Smart. He's gonna make sure the entire team's there. He's gonna make sure there's a prank involved. He's gonna have like an elaborate setup. Um, he's just the team guy like that. Or Kemba um, he... actually. Kemba's a total but team you, guy and has the most money. <laughs> you guys brought up Cantor again. We've talked about Furkan Korkmaz. There's a low-key storyline that I'm not sure is going to end up being reported that I think we should talk about for Sixers and Celtics fans right now, uh, you know, about the, the politics in Turkey, right, where right. with Cantor's family is uh, ostracized by Turkey. Cantor can't go back to Turkey. He's considered uh, you know, on a terrorist list and stuff like that, even though His he's dad was just out about the government. From- from prison oh really after, i think uh yeah it was a few months ago i think it was during oh. the like the lockdown stuff and so Cantor's about to get you know citizenship in the united states it's been a long process but um he talked on the bill simmons podcast recently Cantor did about when he sees cork maz or Ilyasova and, and other turkish players in the nba they won't even look at him or say hi to him like he'll go up to them, what's up? And then they, they, they can't look at them because they're afraid that the Turkish government is going to see them interacting with someone the Turkish government has deemed a terrorist and that they're afraid for their family and their family's safety back in Turkey. So right. you have that dynamic going on on the court. 
which is, I mean, weird, uh, sad, also just very fascinating. Yeah, I sort of wish it wasn't ensnared in like international politics and like and and a Turkish problem with uh, Enes Kanter, who certainly seems to be doing uh, good things and, and speaking out. Uh, but you know what? If a Sixer isn't going to talk to a Celtic, I think that's great. I think as much animosity, you know, use it. Use whatever you have. Uh, so I, I fully endorse Furkan giving him the cold shoulder during the series. I wish they were fighting over, like, a girl. That would make it so would much be better. That much more fun. Like, Furkan stole Ennis's girl. That's what right. I'm going to pretend is going on. Like, if you ever saw the movie Pearl Harbor, that's what I'd like. <laughs> that's what I'd like. Give me a Josh Hartnett Ben Affleck conflict, and I'm there. Yeah, I had um, I admire a lot of what Ennis Cantor is doing, and um, I honestly I'm not a big fan of his U.S. politics. Um, uh, that's just me personally. Um, but I know um, just like for Turkey, what he's doing, and I don't know a ton about it, but I, I'm I know that you know his cause in general is a very good cause. And um, what he does takes a lot of uh, bravery, really. Um, and when, when you talk about, like, kind of the, the Furcon thing where, like, um, you know, I know he didn't um, – I know I don't think it was meant to be, like, a personal thing, although I know I didn't listen to Bill Simmons' pod. I know Emily did. She correct me if it was, like, really meant to be, like, a, like a call-out in turn or other than just, like – No, a, it was not. You guys. Yeah. yeah so um, – I, I also understand the other side. Like, obviously, uh, Ennis Kanter is being extremely brave in in doing anything uh, related to the Turkish government. But I understand, you know, not everyone is is in a position where they feel okay doing what he is doing, and and I don't think it has to be like a, um, you know, a big tense thing. I, I obviously I, I agree with um, with Steve, and like I, I hope they hate each other for team reasons, which I don't think they do. But um, but no, what Ennis is doing is is very brave. But I also don't think it can be expected of, like you can't just demand that of someone else. Um, I think it's just, um, from what I understand about like the international politics of it, it's like an impossible situation. Right. It's not personal, but how could it not be? I don't think that Ennis also expects that from other people. Like in the podcast, he wasn't. Like you said, he wasn't calling them out. He was just kind of saying, like, these guys pillied with my brother and they, they can't even say hi to me. Kind of almost highlighting, like, how bad that the the politics in Turkey are and how, like, there's, like, a ter- they feel terror for their family to even say hi to him, even though growing up they knew each other. Um, so I don't, I don't think that he – it didn't seem that he holds anything against them. And like you said, Dan, everyone can't be expected to be as brave as him, and I don't know that he does. But it's just a sad situation. Well, we are coming up on the end here. Let me – before we go, I want to get predictions from everybody. Which team do you think is going to win and in how many games? Let's start with the Celtics pride crew. Josh. Celtics in five. Mike. Document it now. Uh, I'm agreeing with Josh. I'm inclined to say Celtics in five as well. <laughs> Holy cow! I'm going to say Celtics in six. Emily, Sixers in six. Whoa, Steve. Boston is just a much better team. So Sixers in seven, with <laughs> Furkan having forty points and a cold shoulder. <laughs> in seven. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. So I'm going to go with. Sixers in six, like Emily. Uh, I, 
agree with Steve that Boston's the better team. But uh, like Emily has has pointed out, I think the Sixers have the best player in the series. Uh, and and I also think that not just the best player, but the best mismatch in the series. And that's where I'm going to go with the Sixers. There you have it. Homerism knows no bounds on yeah, both sides. <laughs> what else would you expect from a bunch of bloggers? <laughs> so, hey, I got I got your Sixers coaching replacements list. You guys want me to uh, – should we just have you back on another cross pod in the offseason when Ashley Brown great. actually gets fired? Or should you want the list now? No, let's you know let, let teach that. <laughs> <laughs> or we could do another pod before game seven, and then we'll have a lot of vitriol uh, on both sides. Deal. That just sounds great. About stuff that none of us have actually done, just like on-court stuff that we hold against. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. right. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having us. This was Thank really you. fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah, congratulations on the new pod. I love the intro music. It's Sam Cooke. Is that right? Uh, I believe it's a cover of a Sam Cooke song that we could get the rights to. But sure, let's call it Sam <laughs> Cooke. Yeah. We can't afford the real song. I mean, come on. All right. Take Thanks so much, everyone. all. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash V-I-Y-A. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.